scripture reading, we read from Philippians chapter 2. We read this chapter from the viewpoint that it speaks of Jesus as God's son, equal with God, and it also speaks of him as Lord, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And also there's a number of references to how we who are his property, and that's the idea, when we talk about him as our Lord, it brings out the idea that we are his property. This chapter speaks of how we are to imitate him. In fact, this is a chapter that speaks of how we see the relationship between doctrine and our practical life quite clearly. On the one hand, there's some verses here that are very doctrinal in nature. And yet, when you look at before it and after it, you see how the doctrine is being applied and how we are to walk in humility and to esteem others better than ourselves and that we're not to be striving, we're not to be seeking to glorify ourselves, we're to be assisting others. As those who belong to Christ, we're to seek what is Christ's. So we read the chapter from that point of view. Philippians chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. So far, we read from Holy Scripture this evening. And what we just read in all of Scripture are the bases for the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 13. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. But we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord? Because he hath redeemed us both soul and body, 
from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. Dearly beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage speaks to us about people confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those three words, Jesus Christ and Lord, are often found together. We often speak of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Heidelberg Catechism has gone through and been talking about the three, those, those three words. What does the name Jesus mean? We talked about him as our complete Savior. And we bring out there, when we talk about him as the complete Savior, there's Many that would say, yes, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And yet they talk about conditional salvation. And we say Jesus is a complete Savior. When we call him Savior, his name that indicates he's the Savior, he's the complete Savior. And then we talk last time about what does it mean that he's the Christ and that's a term that people are well aware of the fact that he's called Christ. But if you were to ask people, what does that term mean? Many would not know. But they hear all the time about Jesus Christ. They hear people speak about him. Many people take his name in vain. And there are many Christians that if you were to ask them, well, well, what does that term even mean? Why is he called the Christ? And we talk about how that means he's anointed. That's what the term means. Well, then that leads to the next question. Well, what does anointed mean? And the two ideas that he's chosen, he's ordained of God, and he's anointed with the Holy Spirit, and that he is our prophet, priest, and king. And that we are Christians means we partake of his anointing. We're members of him by faith, and we partake of his anointing, and we're prophets, we're priests, and we're kings under Jesus Christ. Now this Lord's Day talks about what it means that he's Lord. It also answers the question about what is meant by the phrase only begotten son. It looks at that question too, specifically from the word, those words only begotten. When we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord. Instead of just saying his son, our Lord, we say 
his only begotten. And the, the question that's asked here has to do with those words. Why is he called the only begotten son? I mean, we're, we're children of God. In fact, verse 15, what we just read, said that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke and so on. Well, we're children of God, so why is he called the only begotten? And then it explains that. And we'll look at that in the first place, what it means that he is the only begotten, the eternal son, the one who is our Lord, is the eternal son of God. And secondly, we look at it from the viewpoint of that term Lord and that that means we're his property. And I put that as the second point, put the focus on that, that the term Lord has that idea. Someone might say it's similar to the idea of king, that he rules us. But the word Lord has the idea that he who is our king is our Lord. He owns us. We are his property. And then we've talked about how that idea that we're not our own, that we belong to Christ, we can look at that from two points of view. One is, that's our comfort. That, we, that we're not our own. But we belong to our Lord who has redeemed us and delivered us, and that's, that's brought out in this Lord's Day. He delivered us from the power of the devil. He's redeemed us by his precious blood and delivered us. And we're safe in him. The idea that here we're his property and we're not our own also is applied to the idea of the Christian life. And the scriptures apply it that way. You're not your own. And then they apply it. Glorify God. Because you are not your own. Your bodies and souls are temples of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. Glorify God. And so also we look at it from that point of view. The comfort and also our calling when we look at it from the viewpoint that we are his property. Then lastly, with regard to his name, and this is a passage that makes a specific reference to him humbling himself, being obedient unto death, even the cursed death of the cross, and that God hath highly exalted him and given him a name above all others. That everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is, and then their word, that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the application of that to our walking in humility and how that's the context here. Don't do anything out of strife and vainglory. Esteem others better than yourselves. 
Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then it gives examples of saints concerned about God's people, concerned about the Apostle Paul. Paul himself, suffering in prison, shows he's concerned about the saints, the church. He says he's going to rejoice hearing that the church is doing well. Though he himself may be suffering and in prison, he's going to be joyful that he hear, if he hears that they're like-minded and he hears things are going well with them, that his mind is on them. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love and so on. And then gives the example of Christ let this mind be in you, and so on. So we look also at it from the viewpoint of Christ who humbled himself and was exalted and received a name above all others, and then the calling, our calling to imitate our Lord. So we look at it under the theme, given a name above every name, the eternal Son, his property, and his name. First of all, with regard to the idea of only begotten, the answer is, you know, as far as the question, why is he called the only begotten? The answer is that he's the eternal son. We're not eternally sons of God. We were eternally chosen. And then there was a certain time when we were conceived and born but he's the eternal son. And we are sons of God by grace. There was a time when we were not only conceived and born, but there was a time when we were regenerated and received a new heart. But he's, he's the eternal son. He's the natural son. And we... We're adopted, and we'll get to that idea of our being adopted, Lord willing, in a moment. But first, looking at the idea simply that he is the eternal son. He's eternally begotten. He's not made or created. He's eternally the son. And only one person is the son. The spirit is not a second son. He's not begotten. He proceeds or is breathed forth from both the Father and the Son, but he's not begotten. If he was begotten, then there would be two sons, but there's only the one. And the Father is eternal and the Son is eternal. He's begotten from eternity, we say. We talk about the eternal begetting of the Son. And that's beyond our full comprehension how that is. As we think with regard to our own children, there's a time, if you have children, there was a time when you didn't have them. And then you had children. So one would think that with the father, there must have been a time when there was just the father and then he begat the son and said, no, that's not the way it is. He was eternal. He's eternal as the father is eternal. And we know that from the, the word of God. 
and that he is the image. He's the word, wisdom, and image, as we confess in the Belgic Confession. There are some errors with regard to that that we need to be on guard against. We mentioned two briefly. One is the error that's known as canoticism, which is kind of a big word, but it's related to this chapter. It comes from the Greek word kanao, which has as its idea emptying himself. And it has to do with the word he made, the phrase he made himself of no reputation. That's the Greek word uh, from the verb kanao. And that's where the word kanaticism comes from. And it means the term that's translated made himself of no reputation has the idea of emptying himself. But the question is, what does it mean that he emptied himself? And there are those that have said that for a time, he ceased to be omniscient. That he like cast off his divine, some of his divine attributes, as if that was even possible. That the eternal son could just re, be, have removed from him some of his attributes. And that for a time he wasn't omniscient. He didn't know all things. You know, and when people refer to passages, well, look, there's passages where the son talked about something he didn't know when he was walking on this earth and before his death. And we say, well, that's to be explained from the viewpoint of the two natures of Christ. But it's not the idea that his divine nature changed. He's unchangeable. He couldn't cast off some of his divine perfection. Another error that's being taught in our own day is called the eternal functional subordination of the sun, or EFS, eternal functional subordination. It's another long phrase, and sometimes just shortened as EFS. And the idea there is that the eternal sun submits to the Father eternally. And again, when passages are shown that refer to the Son submitting to the Father, we say, well, again, that's to be explained from the viewpoint of the two natures. But there are those that say, no, we're not, we're, we're looking at it from the viewpoint of him as, looking at as him as eternal God, the second person of the Trinity submits to the first person. And then they use that as an encouragement for wives to submit to their husbands. And so some of those who promote that are, they're against same-sex marriage. They're against this general neutral language in the Bible translations. And they speak about biblical manhood and womanhood. So, you know, somebody from our own midst could pick up some of these books and think that, well, you know, we're against the same-sex marriage and, and 
We're about biblical, you know, we would hold to the biblical idea of manhood and womanhood, but then you come across this kind of teaching that the women are to, are to be submissive to their husbands, which are their head. Well, that's right. But then they say, just like the eternal son submits to the father. We say, that's, that's not correct. Then you're talking about the son having a different will than the father. And that the son's will, talking about him now from the viewpoint of his divine nature, that from the viewpoint of his divine nature, that he submits to the first person. Well, the will, to the will belongs to the, to the nature. To the nature, the divine nature. So that what it really would amount to saying is that the essence of the Son is not the same essence as the essence of the Father. That's how serious that is. And even if they would say, no, 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 it's the same, they're the same essence. That really is what that amounts to teaching. The Son is equal with God. There is one divine essence. As is brought out in this very, uh, very chapter, when it says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He's equal with God. One divine essence, one essence, three persons. He's the eternal son. He's the natural son. We are adopted. Now, when we talk about our adoption, it's if you consider adopting of children today, what would be involved? And there's a, you can see there's a, the, it corresponds to, there's a correspondence between that to a certain degree and what we read of from when the scriptures speak about us being adopted. You'd say, well, first of all, there'd be a choosing. If you were to adopt a child, you'd choose a child. There'd be a price paid. And then you would bring the child home and you'd start talking to the child as your child and you'd be having them calling you mom and dad well now when we when scripture speaks of us as adopted it makes reference to that God chose us unconditionally he chose us it brings out the idea that he bought us we were bought with a price. He paid, he, he redeemed us. Which is also going to be, that idea also comes up with the idea of talking about him as our Lord. But here we're looking at it from the viewpoint of our adoption. He redeemed us. We're bought with a price. We then are addressed as children of God. But there's more to it than that. We receive the spirit of the Son. So it's not only that Christ died for us, but also the spirit of the Son is given 
to us and we bear the image of God. Now that's one difference between, you know, if you were to adopt a child, the child would always, the child would never look like you. The child would continue to look like his or her parents, biological parents. We receive the spirit of the Son, we're regenerated, and we bear the image of God. Our Father is righteous, we are righteous. Our Father is holy, we are holy. We reflect some of the perfections of, God, of our Father in a creaturely way. And then we are, God talks to us and tells us that we're his children, even as in this very chapter, there's a reference to us as the sons of God. That we address, that he addresses us as his children, and he teaches us to call him father. Just like if you were to bring a child home and say, now I want you to call me dad. And then God tells us now, when we pray, call God father, our Father, and then that's what we do. We call him our Father. He is our Father. And the Spirit conforms us to the image of God's Son. That's amazing. But the Spirit of the Son conforms us to him. And the full realization of our adoption is is still future. We're said to be waiting for the adoption. And that's in Romans 8, that it makes a reference that we're waiting for our adoption, and then it's talking about the bodily resurrection. And then our sonship will be fully manifested when that day comes, that we are God's children. What a comfort it is. For us to know that God is our Father. That Jesus, God's only begotten Son, is our Lord. And now we turn to the second word that's used, you know, that we, we talk about the, the Son. He's the Son. He's the only begotten Son. And now we look at it from the viewpoint of he who is God's only begotten Son is our Lord. He's our Lord. Now we're familiar with the fact that that term, Lord, is a term that people used with one another. And there's a number of times when people would speak to one another and refer to somebody as their Lord. And Sarah calling Abraham her Lord. She belonged to Abraham. Abraham is her head. But we understand that when Jesus is referred to as our Lord, that the idea is that he has redeemed us. Both soul and body. And that he has 
redeemed us by his blood. We were given to the Son. The Son spoke about those who had been given to him. He redeemed us, not with money, but with his precious blood. And he has delivered us from bondage. That he's our Lord carries with it that idea that we were in bondage and we've been set free. Most are still in bondage. Most are in bondage. We still have a depraved nature. Out of which only comes, flows what's evil. So that's still the case when you talk about us from the viewpoint of our depraved nature. But it's also the case that we've been set free. And our our canons speak, for example, about what happened to our will. What happened to the will of man? Our will was dead. And he quickened our will. That we, now looking at us from the viewpoint of our new heart, that we really do have a desire to serve God. Unbelieving man has no desire to do that. We don't by nature. But when you talk about us, we mention what's true of us from the viewpoint of our old man and also what's true of us from the viewpoint of the new man. We've been delivered from the power of the devil. We've been set free. He's our Lord. Now he has authority over all. We read that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And he said, all authority has been given unto me. He rules in us in such a way that we willingly follow him. We speak of sins remaining against our will, you know, like in the Lord's Supper form. We say, well, no, we don't serve, you know, we're not saying we serve God with the zeal that we ought. We have daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and so on. That's a daily struggle. But we are, by the grace of God, sorry, and we're earnestly desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to the will of God. That is our desire. You say, who who honestly says that? Those who have Christ as their Lord. They honestly say that. So that when our young people make confession of faith, as a number of them right now are you know, doing across town at Calvary, and Lord willing, in a few weeks, we'll have a number of them saying that here. When somebody says, stands up and says they're resolved to adhere to this doctrine and so on, and if somebody says, are, are you being honest when you say that? It's such, it's such, the questions are so short. 
And yet to say that honestly, well, the child of God who's been redeemed honestly says yes to that. And when our children say yes to that, they say yes as those who are conscious of the fact that they are God's children. So that they're not just saying, I know that God saves by grace alone and that salvation is unconditional, but I know that God has saved me. I know Christ has died for me. I know I'm a member of the body of Christ, that Christ is my Lord. that I'm confessing him to be my Lord. That that's, that's what, what our young people mean when they make confession of faith. And what a joy to hear that. A joy for the consistory to hear that, a joy for us as a congregation when we hear that. We're not our own, we're his property. Now, many people, you know, people of the world will always talk about it's my life. Or today, you know, we're hearing a lot of people that are saying, it's my body. You can't tell me what I'm going to do with my body. And here they're talking about having a child, a woman having a child in her womb. And she's saying, I have the right to end that child's life if I want to. I can do what I want. You can't tell me what I, what I can do and how horrible it is and how people are rejoicing and if it goes their direction that, oh, we're going to be allowed to abort our children. Oh, they're rejoicing and hugging each other. When what they're talking about is murder. People say, well, it's my body. I can do what I want. Many people say, it's my life. I, I can do with whatever I want. We say it's a comfort to say it. I'm not my own. And that we, we belong to Christ. Now we know many people just say that. Jesus pointed that out too. He said many will say, Lord, Lord. You know, there are many that say, Lord, Lord. And he even said, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Now, of course, that line, it's good for us to remember that when, whenever we're tempted to do what we know we ought not do. Jesus saying, why, now, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and then not do what I, what I say? So if someone is going to walk in a sin of fornication, say, and then if you ask now, is Jesus your Lord? You say, oh, yes, he's my Lord. And Jesus said, well, why do you say Lord, Lord, but do not what I say? In fact, that idea that we've been bought with a price, and that we're not our own, that is applied specifically to the sin of fornication in 1 Corinthians 6. That there's a specific reference to that idea. You're not your own. 
You've been bought with a price. And we're not to do what other people tell us to do when they're telling us to do something contrary to what God says, even if that's our own family member. If they're telling us to do something contrary to what God says, we must say, we belong to Christ. We've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 7 says, again that phrase, you were bought with a price, be not the servants of men. So in our in daily life, we constantly are to keep in mind, we've been bought with a price. We're to serve Christ. We're to do what he says. And that that has a bearing on whom we walk with as friends. In the sense of who we walk with, we're not to have fellowship with those who are walking impenitently in sin. God says, come out from among them. Whom we would date, whom we would marry, we're not our own. Where we would go to church, we're not our own. Where we would live. Somebody may have a better job from a world, from a certain point of view, think of there's a better job opening somewhere, but they don't know where there's a sound church there. So what should they do? Well, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And in all of our daily decisions, we're constantly to remember that we've been bought. We've been redeemed. And indeed, we desire to serve him. So it's on the one case we have to say, well, well we have to do what Jesus tells us. He's our Lord. That's true. But it's also true that we can say, that's what we want to do. That we speak of loving the law of God. Oh, how love I thy law. And that we delight to serve God. When he puts his, writes his law in our heart, then we want to serve him. It grieves us when we sin. And we're genuinely sorry when we sin. We're not just sorry because something happens to us on account of our sin and we're really sorry for whatever the judgment may have been that came upon us because we did something wrong and then we're sad about that. We're sorry that we sinned against the God whom we love. It's like Peter when Jesus, his Lord, looked at him. And then he wept bitterly. Looking at his Lord and thinking of what he just did. And he wept. And our mind is directed to our Lord and what he's done for us. And then we look at things we've done, things we've said, and, and we weep. And we ask God to forgive. And he comforts us. He continues to comfort us. 
that we're forgiven, that we're washed, that we're cleansed, whiter, whiter than snow. Our Lord Jesus Christ has a name above every name. And it brings out, now this is the passage we, we use when we talk about the, the stages of, of Christ's state of humiliation and his state of exhortation. And you young people learn that in, you know, in the doctrinal classes, we go through that. It's called the states of Christ. And we talk about his state of humiliation, his lowly birth, lifelong suffering, death, burial, descension to hell. And then we talk about his exaltation, resurrection, ascension, sitting at God's right hand, returning as judge. Well, this is a passage that speaks about him suffering and also his exaltation. So when we talk about those, the, the states, this is a passage that's gone to. So from a doctrinal point of view, this is a central passage on that very subject. It speaks of him being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And we talked about that. He's the eternal son, took upon himself the human nature. The idea that he made himself of no reputation. He said, well, that doesn't mean he threw off his divine perfections. What does it mean? It means not that his divine nature was lessened, but that his glory was concealed. So that as he walked, as he, walked he just appeared to be a man. So here he is, God, and he could walk you and you could just think that's just another man walking by he was found in fashion as a man of course he is a real, real man that's still true that Jesus today is still a real man he took upon himself the human nature and, and it was not that he was man for a while and no more he still is But he took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, found in fashion as a man, and he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death. So not only is it the case that his glory is concealed, and he just seems like a man, but now also he's obedient unto the death, and it appeared unto the accursed death, so that as he's hanging up there, it's as if, as if he's an evildoer as if he must have done something horrible, that that's why he's up there. What did he do that he deserved that? As others look on. And the truth was he had done nothing wrong. But our guilt was, he bore our guilt. He suffered in our place as our head. And God exalted him. Wherefore God also highly exalted himself. He exalted him. He humbled himself. And there's this idea that we look at Christ 
And we see how he humbled himself and God exalted him. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him. And then explains that and goes on a little bit about that. He's given him a name that's above every name. And that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess. That idea is brought out too in, in uh, the book of Romans. Bringing out the idea that he's the judge. He's got the name above every name. Everybody's going to confess that he is Lord. He is the judge. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's Romans 14, 11, and 12. He's the Lord. He's the judge. We'll all sit before the, we'll all come before the judgment seat of Christ. And all, and they all will confess that he is Lord. He's received the name above all others. For somebody to hear that and then walk in sin and reject Christ as Lord, they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We know we're sinners. When our confessions speak about the final judgment, it speaks of us from the viewpoint of us looking forward to that day. Because the same one who died for us is the judge. With joy, we confess he's our, he's our Lord. But note that lesson there. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And then the application, don't do anything out of strife or vainglory. Those that exalt themselves will be brought low. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Oh, and you say, well, I know that. Scripture teaches that. Now, if somebody knows that, and then they try to exalt themselves. You say, well, don't, don't you know that God says those that exalt themselves will be brought low. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's, that's the application there. Don't be striving and doing things out of vainglory and people envying one another and striving to get the attention to themselves and put other people down and exalt themselves. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's the application. That we're to be serving our God, serving our Lord who has redeemed us, humbling ourselves. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. God tells us that. Those who honor me, I will honor. And we see the example of Christ who honored God. And was obedient even unto the accursed death. 
and how he was exalted. And now we who are children of God, we who belong to Christ, are called to imitate him. Take up our cross cheerfully. Follow our Lord. Believe his promises. What he has told us, which we know is true. Let our light shine. As we read, to all things without murmurings and disputings, verse 14, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights. Shining as lights? Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Imitating our Lord, holding forth the word of life, seeking to glorify our God in our confession, and also in our walk, that it's evident to others who our Lord is. To whom do we belong? And that we show, as young and old, that we show in our conduct who our Lord is. And that we're thankful to be delivered from bondage and that we want to magnify his name. That we show who our Father is. That we are sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And that we want to thank him. And that we love him. And want to praise him. May we, young and old, encourage one another. Even as this chapter speaks of us, working together, esteeming one another better than ourselves. And may we work together to the glory of our God, enjoying fellowship together. And together, walking with our God, led by him, living to his honor. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God and our Father, we are very thankful, O oh Lord, for thy grace. We're very thankful, O oh Lord, for thy mercy. Thou hast shown us mercy. Grant us grace and our children grace, O oh Lord, to live unto thee. We delight, O oh Lord, to serve thee. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from evil, Lord, lead us. And may we with joy work together and fellowship together. We are thankful for the other members of the body of Christ. Grant us the grace to do what thou hast called us to do, to esteem others better than ourselves. Grant us the grace to imitate our Lord and Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.